For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Good. Okay. Um, for new people, I'm Tygen Layton, the guiding teacher of Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. I'm very, very happy to have with us this morning as guest teacher, Hosan Alan Sanaki, who's the abbot of the Berkeley Zen Center uh, and an old friend and an old friend of Ancient Dragon Zen Gay. Uh, and this morning, uh, I'm hoping Alan will talk some about his remarkable newly published book from Shambhala, Turning Words. Transformative Encounters with Buddhist Teachers. So uh, these are glimpses of Alan's practice and of various uh, wonderful uh, Zen teachers and practitioners, including uh, Zengu, who's here with us online. So thank you, Alan. Osan. Thank you, Daigen, and uh, good morning, everyone. Um, can I, am I able to share screen? I am. Okay, great. Uh, I'm not going to do it yet, but, uh, how do I get out of this? So I'm happy to be with you here, uh, there in Chicago. And I will, uh, be with you in person, I believe, at the end of, at the end of April. Uh, and I'm looking forward to that. My daughter lives in Chicago, and uh, I'm looking forward to visiting with, with her and uh, being in Chicago at a season that uh, is probably quite lovely and hopefully warm. Uh, but uh, I think what else? No other news, I guess. Uh, but I'm always glad to be with you. So today I'm going to use as a point of departure uh, a story or two from my new book, which is now it's blurred, so you can't see it at all. <laughs> this is interesting effect, this blurring. Uh, there we go. Tygen has it. All right. Uh, it came out about two weeks ago. Uh, and... I'm trying to figure out how to work with it, but I'd like to tell you, I'd like to start with uh, one of the pieces in the book. Basically, the book is a collection of encounters that I've had with with teachers and with people, people who are acknowledged teachers, people who are ordinary students, a couple people who are uh, figures of legend in our tradition. Uh, but there are things that have really moved me uh, throughout my practice. And so I'm, I call those turning words, although they're not always words. Sometimes they're actions, sometimes there's an example. But things that uh, affect and change our direction uh, in our lives and in our practice, uh, and it's a it's an ancient concept. This concept of of turning words. Uh, in fact, it's kind of at the at the the pivotal heart of of all almost all the koans. Uh, there's a turning word that wakes somebody up. So uh, I'm not necessarily going to claim anything as grandiose as uh, waking up or enlightenment, but a way that gets us to attend to our life and our world, uh, whether our self in the particular 
particularity of one's being or our self in the large sense that is connected to all beings. So a wonderful example or example of that is uh, Mahagosananda. And that's where I'm going to start today. And I'm going to let me just give you an idea of who we're talking about here. Okay. You can see that, right? That's Mahagosananda. And uh, he was a remarkable figure that uh, I've got to spend some time with both in Asia, mostly in Thailand, and also here in the United States. Uh, And just to say he was, he had been appointed the Supreme Patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. And at the time, uh, there were very few monks because the uh, the Khmer Rouge, uh, which had taken power in opposition to uh, an imposed American military regime that was established in 1970 in Cambodia, Khmer Rouge were ruling the country brutally. Uh, and uh, you've all heard of the killing fields. Well, uh, caught in those kidding, killing fields were virtually the entire monastic Sangha of Cambodia. And so um, of the 65,000 monks that had been uh, in Cambodia around the time the Khmer Rouge took power, three quarters of them were murdered and the rest were disrobed and the only Cambodian monastics that survived were ones like Mahagosananda, who happened to be in retreat in uh, Thailand at the time. So, um, I think that sometimes we have a mistaken view of Theravada monks. We put them in the Hinayana class, you know, which of course uh, is a whole, uh, it's power play by, uh, well, it might be a power play by scholars uh, that classify uh, one kind of Buddhism, Mahayana, the, the great vehicle over uh, another kind of Buddhism, Hinayana, the lesser vehicle, which supposedly uh, was more self-concerned or concerned about uh, the liberation of individual monks. Well, that's not what I have ever seen in uh, Southeast Asia, South and Southeast Asia. And Mahagosananda was an exemplar. It's like everything that he did was for the liberation and uh, to alleviate suffering for his people. And so for years, he led uh, a Dhammayetra, a Dharma walk uh, that would go from the refugee camps in Thailand on the Thai Cambodian border, uh, well into Cambodia to Phnom Penh, the the capital. And these were, I had many friends who were on these walks. I wished I had done that. Uh, uh, They were on the one hand dangerous because the war, uh, at that point, it was a war between the Khmer Rouge and Vietnam, which had invaded Cambodia, uh, and uh, there was a lot of fighting. Uh, that was going on, and these Dharmietras crossed that territory, and uh, I think at, at one point, one of the uh, Japanese monks who was on the walk actually got killed in a crossfire. And at another time, I remember a whole 
cohort of people on the march got taken captive by the Khmer Rouge. And uh, Mahagos Nanda had to go and, and meet with them. And he got them released. The Khmer Rouge were, they grew to respect Mahagos Nanda very deeply. So that's a little background. I mean, let me read you a little from this book. And I'm, In the autumn, in autumn 1992, about 40 of us, mostly from across Asia, took the night train from Bangkok to Chiang Mai, freezing all night in the excessive air conditioning, eventually arriving in that northern city at dawn. Open vans took us to Wat Ubang, which is the tunnel temple at the foot of Doi Sutep to the west of the city, Chiang Mai. Um, this was my first trip to Thailand and my first uh, conference of the International Network of Ga- Engaged Buddhists, the first one that I attended. And the friends that I traveled with uh, they, and met there have been my close Dharma brothers and sisters ever since. Uh, So this goes back over 30 years. An aging monk, diminutive and somewhat androgynous, took center stage in his orange robes. He spoke briskly in low tones. The smile on his face was audible. This was the first time I heard Mahagosananda, the Cambodian patriarch in exile. Later, I met with Gosananda numerous times throughout the 90s, both at INEB conferences and in the Bay Area. Bonte traveled alone, and his students and supporters often did not know where he was or where he was going. From time to time, someone would call me at home and ask if I had seen Bonte. We think he's headed to San Francisco. Uh, and he would show up in a day or two, completely calm, laughing easily, walking, uh, floating two inches above the ground, and always moving forward. So back to Chiang Mai in 1992. Mahagosananda made himself comfortable sitting on stage. He beamed at the assembly and asked, What is the most important thing? He called on the young monks, on elders, and on the Ineb notables. And um, I'm going to do the same thing right now. Uh, Please tell me, uh, you can just jump in, unmute and jump in and tell me, what do you think is the most important thing? Please feel free. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Well, what's the question? What's the answer? That's it. Uh, <laughs> okay. Anyone else? Oh, caring. I'm sorry? Caring. Caring? Okay. Someone else. Full presence. Full presence. Now I'm going to do what he did. (laughs) Someone else. Paul. Um, I would give you back your answer. It's it's uh, the appropriate response. There is no important thing. <laughs> well, you you studied with the king of the what's the most important thing question. <laughs> There's a response in the in the hall. Let me see if I can let me see if it's on. Kathy. No separation. 
of separation. Okay. He called on these young monks, on elders and Ainem notables, and each threw out a good answer, and each was met with a disappointed nod of the head. This went on for 20 minutes. Finally, Bonte said, the most important thing is eating. <laughs> In his book, Maha goes step by step. And uh, I don't know if this book is still in print, but it is online. And I really encourage you to check it out. The whole book is online. Uh, step by Step by Maha Gosananda. Uh, he explains, this is a, from the book. Life is eating and drinking through all our senses. And life is keeping from being eaten. What eats us? Time. What is time? Time is living in the past or living in the future, feeding on emotions. This next sentence is, uh, to me, it's the, the pivotal one of this. It says, beings who can say that they, were, that they are mentally healthy for even one minute are rare in the world. Most of us suffer from clinging to pleasure, to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings, and from hunger and thirst. Most living beings have to eat and drink every second through their eyes, ears, nose, tongue, skin, and nerves. We eat 24 hours a day without stopping. We crave food for the body, food for the feeling, food for volitional action, and food for rebirth. We are what we eat. We are the world, and we eat the world. We are the world, and we eat the world. So, in a sense, we're uh, we're also eating. We we're eating ourselves, and we experience this in uh, in vernacular form. It's like you know, just I'm eating myself up inside when we're troubled. Uh, we're consuming ourselves. He goes on. Time is also an eater. In traditional Cambodian stories, there's often a giant with many mouths who eats everything. This giant is time. If you eat time, you gain nirvana. You can eat time by living in the moment. When you live just in this moment, time cannot eat you. Now, we have to be really careful about this idea of living in the moment. Um, there's another story in my book. Uh, when I was at Buddhist Peace Fellowship, uh, I had a column every, every two months in the journal Turning Wheel. And I once wrote sort of sloppily, slop, sloppy writing and sloppy thinking. Uh, I said something like, we have to stay in the present. And, uh, the magazine came out and, uh, the Zen teacher Nelson Foster, who was one of the founders of, of Buddhist Peace Fellowship, called me up that week, one night. Uh, to tell me, um, you can't stay anywhere. It was very important for him to, to tell me that. And th those were turning words for me. They made it into the book because he's right. You can't stay in the present. 
So living in the present means uh, being attuned with the flow, with the flow of existence. And it means, in one sense, sitting on the banks of the river and just watching the river flow while simultaneously you are in the river uh, swimming floating or row row rowing your boat um, that's what it means to be in the present. And what that means in terms of time is to be just in time. I often, I think I carry a lot of songs around in my head. Uh, and uh, I've written a lot of things that where I have stolen song titles uh, as the title of the piece. So uh, I keep thinking in the back of my head, there's, there's something I want to write of it just in time. So, you know, the song just in time, I found you just in time until you came along. My time was running low uh, and goes on. The, the world of uh, songs, frankly, uh, many of those standards are just, they're full of Dharma teachings. Uh, so just in time is what we're, uh, what we're looking for. There's a koan uh, I'm, Chagan would know the prominence of it. Uh, uh, I'm not sure which, the student asked the teacher, and I'm not sure which teacher, uh, the student asked uh, something like, what about the 24 hours? And uh, the teacher says, you are used by the 24 hours. I used the 24 hours. So yes. to you, who is it? Jojo. Jojo, that's what I thought. That's actually what I thought. It was, yeah. Uh, and actually, there's another relevant story, which I'll tell from, from Jojo or Jojo is uh, one of the towering figures. But anyway, uh, when we are used by the 24 hours, we are eaten by the 24 hours. When we use the 24 hours, uh, perhaps what we're doing is uh, tilling the field. We are, uh, we may be, we have to be eating, but we're also replenishing the soil that we are working from. So, this eating is very important. Uh, you know, in any given moment, you are likely to have a variety of notions of what's the most important thing, and you wouldn't be wrong about any of them. Uh, you could have said breathing. Um, you know, you could say compassion. You could say any number of things. All of these are at a given moment of your attention uh, in that present instant that is always moving. That's the most important thing. And you can live like Mahagosananda 
with your life directed at saving all sentient beings and uh, doing it. What I what I must say uh, is that he was maybe the most joyous person that that I ever met. Uh, and often you'll see this among uh, really, uh, can I say, awake or attuned people that they have a lightness or a joy to them that is certainly contagious. Uh, and he also he did not stand in any he knew his position and this is important if you're going to uh, if you're going to be moment to moment in the present you need to know where you are as my old teacher Sojin instructed us instructed well he instructed us he certainly instructed me frequently uh you should know where your feet are you should know where you're standing uh and you should know where you're walking and this is when you can do that then you can be light like Mahagosananda. Uh, I'm thinking of another encounter I had with him uh, in Berkeley, which is also in the book, where a monk from the Nagara Dhamma Temple, the Cambodian temple in uh, the avenues in San Francisco, called up and uh, he said, Mahagosananda wants to come to Berkeley and see you. And I said, oh, that sounds great. And in the background, he said, now. And so we said, okay. And we hastily prepared a, a lunch for him. And then we went into a room after lunch. And the, the reason for this visit, which I hadn't been aware of, was he had a whole packet of money, which, of course, Theravada monks are not supposed to handle money, but he had often had on him packets of money in like four or five different currency denominations, uh, so he'd be covered wherever he went. Anyway, he wanted to give me this money, and he went into a, a room and started, uh, you know, he, he looked like a solid, you know, person, and he started unwrapping his robes uh, because the money was in, in this innermost robe, which is kind of like your a monk's underwear. And you had to take off all these, all these layers and he kept peeling them back and peeling them back. And I was frightened that he was going to get to the middle and there was going to be nothing there. Uh, but you know, it was a really skinny guy. Once he took off all those robes. And, you know, he had money that he wanted to get to somebody in the International Network of Engaged Buddhists, which which I was about to go to. And um, he didn't care about protocol. This was how he used time. You know, he didn't care that a monk wasn't supposed to carry money. He didn't care about the niceties or rules of uh, protocol and seniority. Uh, I once went to visit him at that Cambodian temple out in the avenues with uh, my friend Diana Winston and we came, there was nobody else there. He met us at the door. And he asked us if we wanted tea, and we thought someone was going to fix the tea. We didn't know there was nobody there. And uh, he went into the kitchen and prepared tea 
and the senior patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism in his robe served as tea. This, this was highly unusual. This is highly unusual in my experience. You know, monks get served tea, you know, you know, especially senior monks. They don't serve tea, but he didn't care. This is how he wor- worked just in time. And this is, you know, really an inspiration to me. So one more story in line with with the idea of further unpacking uh, This is another figure uh, in the, I guess it was like 1989, probably, or 90. uh, We had a visit at Berkeley Zen Center from Master Sheng Yen. Master Sheng Yen was uh, the founder of of Dharma Drum, which is one of the, the four mountains of contemporary Taiwanese uh, Buddhism. Uh, and at the time, I knew him because, I mean, I knew him, I knew fr- of him from the fact that he led a, he had a, a Zen center, a Chan center in Elmhurst, Queens in New York that people went to. And this is before he had much of a uh, kind of institutional presence in the United States. And as he was building, uh, Dharma Drum in Taiwan, which is really big. Anyway, um, it was a weekday evening, and the zendo was full with him as a, as a guest. And Sojin Roshi was in his abbot seat, and Master Sheng Yan lectured from the the teacher's seat. And uh, as is often the case then and now, I have no recollection of his talk at all. I hardly remember my own talks, frankly. Uh, and, but the talk was followed by a question and answer. And Lori, my, my wife, uh, then my wife-to-be, asked one of those archetypal Zen questions. It's, it goes back to the beginning of, of this talk. She asked, What's the most important thing for a uh, lay practitioner to remember? And uh, Master Shengyan answered very quickly, regulate your life. Regulate your life. And that was another one of those responses that just kind of blew through me. And so for 30 years, I've been trying to regulate my life. I've been trying to think what that means. And regulate is an interesting word. Uh, The Oxford English Dictionary says it means to control or maintain the rate or speed of a machine or process so that it operates properly. The Latin root reg means rule, as in the rule of a king. So you could say that the king's job is to make the nation run harmoniously. Uh, I would say that's all of our job. That is the job of Buddhism. You know, one of the things that we don't understand so much in the West uh but it it exists as uh, in in phrases or artifacts in our in our liturgy, but in Japan, in China, elsewhere, there's a sense that Dhamma practice is about harmonizing the whole world. You know, it is in fact the engine that keeps things 
running smoothly. Uh, it's not strictly, it's, we, we are mistaken when we think of it as kind of about individual trans, transcendence. Uh, people do this together to make sure that the world runs, r- runs correctly for them. Uh, there's also the sense in this word regular of monastic rule, uh, the internal religious, institutionalized religious practice or movement. Uh, and also regulate brings to mind the world, the word regular. Which in common parlance means normal or ordinary, not special. So we're going to go back to going back to Joshu uh, or Jojo. Uh, there's this famous koan. Uh, Joshu asked Master Nansen, his teacher, what is the way? And Nansen replied, ordinary mind is the way. And so, you know, coming full circle, Nansen tells Joshu to regulate his life, to put it in order. This is how we eat the world. This is how we exist just in time, or how we eat and are eaten by the world as a natural process. Everything is eating. This is how we live in time. This is how we live in the moment. And I think that the challenge for for each of us is to take these teachings out of the abstract realm and into the world itself to let them support us so that we can harmonize the world, not in some verified uh, and vague spiritual uh, sense, but actually do what Mahagosananda did to alleviate suffering. He did this. He did it with his presence, which is uh, one of the true meanings of the word dana uh, is the giving, giving of fearlessness. That giving of the a sense of confidence that one actually can be free in the moment. But he also did it by raising money. Uh, he also did it by negotiating with Khmer Rouge. Uh, he, in every level, he used what was within his capacity to do. And uh, that's why he was greatly loved. So I think I'm going to stop there and uh, leave time for your, I'm not sure what our time is, is like, but leave time for your comments or questions and answers. Uh, and so we're open. I can't see, I can't really see you all in the room, but somebody can, if there are people who have questions, you can let me know. And online, you can just raise your hand. I can see the rest of you, except for you who don't have your cameras on. Uh, you can, you can either turn your cameras on or you can raise your digital hands. Uh, yeah. Tigan. Alan, thank you so much. And I just want to say to everyone, this book, uh, Turning Words, uh, that Alan has produced for us is 
just remarkable. I highly, highly recommend it. There are almost three dozen examples of uh, words or experiences that Alan heard that he shares with us that are just, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful, powerful book. So thank you very much, Alan, for thank being you. here and speaking and, uh, so, and uh, from the book and for writing this book. So uh, uh, comments, questions, responses, anybody, David Ray, you can help call on people in the room or online. Please feel free. Uh, thank you, Paul. Um, <clears throat> thank you very much, Ellen. Uh, I like your idea of eating eating time, but I'd like to suggest that the precepts or the table matters for our, for the way we eat time. That uh, I think that's my feeling nowadays that that, that developing a precepts and that, that include our livelihood and our and our relationships with other people, as well as our psychological and and physical ones that we normally think of. Anyway, that precepts are the are the uh, are how we are how we eat or how our, our table matters. Yeah, I I think that's right. You know, um, I'm often reflecting on you know the Kechimiyaku, the lineage document that we uh, that we receive from our teachers, where it says the the perceptual vein uh, of the. The perceptual vein is the single causal gate of the Buddha's way. I believe that's what it says, something like that. That um, it it really centers on the precepts as, um, yes, there are table manners. There are they are complete instructions for how we are actually in relationship to ourself, to other people, and to everything. This is this is what you know. In a sense, uh, Sojin Roshi, my teacher, uh, I, I feel like he he reduced the precepts. Uh, he never said it in these terms, but for me, uh, what he often said was, "Don't treat anything or anyone like an object." And it seems to me that gets at the heart of. Uh, that gets to me at the heart of the of preceptual activity. So yes, thank you, Paul. As people have questions here in the hall, you can just uh, start talking because I can't see your your raised hand. Probably it might take me a moment to unmute. But as people have questions, and and also you might say your name too, and I'll try to get uh, you on the camera. And meantime, I have a question. Yes. Uh, it's about the word turning, um, because that word is so prevalent in different traditions. I'm thinking of conversion in the Abrahamic religions, which just means turning. And, and the, the very well-known uh, myth of the, of the cave, the, the, the allegory of the cave, the, the, the people in are... Pla- in Plato? Yeah, the first thing that they do is they just turn around and, and, and you know, turn it. That's sometimes referred to turning the soul. So is the turning of a turning word? Uh, does, does it refer to like, oh, I'm, uh, what I'm looking at and taking for reality is not really reality? Or is it like, the, is it like taking the backward step and, and, and that inward turn? Or what, what is it about a turning word that makes it turning? Well, I think this is one of the things, and this is in, there's a, uh, a memoir and collection of lectures by Sojin Roshi coming out later this year. And, you know, one, one of those pieces where he speaks to what's kind of fundamental for him is uh, well, always read the other side of the page. Uh, so there's another side of the page. You have to turn the page over to read the other side of the page and you don't press the metaphor too uh, <laughs> too far but i think that we should always be looking at the other side so it means we have to either we have to turn around or we have to turn around uh what we're looking at and to see that it 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 has many it has many aspects. It doesn't have just one. There's not just one perspective that's going to be correct. 
and I think that's very much the uh, the Mahayana approach, which is somewhat different from the early Buddhist approach. Uh, you know, speaking with uh, with Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, one thing that he's said to me is that well, the these early sutras uh, are there's not a lot of room for ambiguity in them. Uh, there's wholesome and unwholesome, essentially. And I think what we've learned from our Zen teachers and we learned from Thich Nhat Hanh is that uh, nothing is pure. And, you know, even in even in uns- even in a um, constructive effort, there are seeds of destructiveness and vice versa. So um, we're turning means really just turning around and looking at it from another angle, or being all or being turned. You know, in all almost all the koans I said are about a teacher turning a student around to look at things another way, and that becomes a, a pivotal experience for them. Pivotal. There's another word, right? I think Eve has a question, and I'm going to see if I can train the camera. Okay. On you. Or just following what David said, I mean, one thing that strikes me in in learning from different wisdom traditions is is what I think of as convergent wisdom, um, where different traditions do seem to converge on on similar themes. Um, you know, what you just said about turning reminded me of William Blake and 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 saying, um, "God save us from single vision and Newton's sleep." Um, That's great. <laughs> And um, what, um, and, uh, oh, and yeah, something I know David knows too, was the, the thing about staying in the now reminded me of Heraclitus saying that you can't step in the same river twice. Right. And, and what's been going through my head lately has been um, Hillel saying, if not now, when? And, and that seems to me to be resonate, to resonate with, with your um, teachings from Mahagosananda. Well, the hard thing about that that last expression is um, to be expansive in our understanding of now. Mm-hmm. Um, because even though you look at from look at it from another angle now. Uh, could be a moment, you know, a geological era could be now, right? So on the one hand, there's, if not now, and on the other hand, there's also to look at from the other side is just to, to breathe and take the long view, to recognize that the circumstances for transformation also have to ripen and be present and uh frankly that may take a longer than we that tries our patience <laughs> you know uh and also uh we're it's really hard because we see people suffering and dying and we want to do something about it now, which is, which I think is the right instinct, but it's not always a useful strategy. Uh, so this is why we need each other. We need the wisdom of our communities to really discern 
the moment to act and the way to act and as and and to act in a way that's guided by that's guided by the precepts not not driven by our sense of urgency discern what we can do yeah 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 i, I mean where that comes from is is if if i am if i am not for if i am um only for myself what am i right um, but yeah if if um uh, but if not now, when? Right, right. Yeah, I'm just bringing up another side. Uh, Jan. Uh, I I really want to thank you for being here and for taking uh, taking us on this little trip to the past, present, and future, and. Um, Really, that's all I have to say is thank you. Um, but I have come to believe that what I'm doing is for now. And I can't predict the future or change the past. And now is what is going on. And I've changed that expression to be, well, this is my practice. And so if I decide to wash a plastic bag instead of throw it out, I'm not doing much, but it's my practice. It's what I, it's just for now. So uh, again, thank you for being here. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think this is in line with what, what Mago Sananda was saying is that uh, you're not, Proposing that that eating is wrong, it's just, it's inevitable, but we need to look, we need to understand what is happening with us, within us, around us, and, uh, you know, the story, uh, I think about the story of, if, if we're eating, uh, can we learn to feed each other? Uh, in other words, uh, instead of stuffing ourselves, can we help each other? Can we feed each other? Which the act of doing that is the creation of community and a relationship. Uh, and so, uh, How do we have a now that is inclusive of the beings sentient and insentient around us? Because they are co-creating that moment. Anyone else? Well, maybe we are, if not, maybe we're complete for the morning. Uh, is this okay in terms of timing? We we do have more time if oh, okay. anyone, I mean, it's okay I'm, to I'm stop open. now. I've got no place to go. <laughs> we all have no place to go and we're going there. Fast. So uh, please, anybody who has any response or comment or reflection on any of this, we do have time for more discussion. And Alan is here to respond. So any um, thoughts that anyone has, uh, please feel free. I'm trying to think of if anything else that... Well, I could sing a song. Uh, Alan, would you please sing a song? Oh, would you like me to sing a song? Sure. Please. Okay. Let's all sing a song. <laughs> yeah, but not all unmuted. Yes, we can all sing, but I'm going to mute everyone except Alan. Okay. 
Um, this is a song that, oh, let me stop this. Uh, the song that I'm going to sing, and you have to excuse my voice. Uh, I don't, it's not so, it's, it's never reliable these days and particularly in the morning. This is a song that was, um, written by wonderful singer Krishna Das, uh, and he wrote it together with Bernie Glassman. And it's about eating, if you like. Uh, and it's, it's taken from the liturgy of, uh, the gate of sweet nectar or the gate of sweet dew. Uh, and, uh, you may have heard this before, uh, but I'm gonna, Share the screen with the lyrics, okay? Calling out to hungry hearts everywhere through endless time. You who wander, you who thirst, I offer you this body mine, calling out to hungry spirits everywhere through endless time, calling out. To hungry hearts, all the lost and left behind, gather round and share this meal, your joy and your sorrow, I make it mine. Calling out to hungry hearts everywhere through endless time. You who wander, you who thirst, I offer you this body mine. Calling out to hungry spirits. Everywhere to endless time, calling out to hungry hearts, all the lost and left behind, gather round and share this meal, your joy and your sorrow, I make it mine. Gather round and share this meal, your joy and your sorrow. Make it mine. Just clapping. Oh, okay. Thank you. Anyhow, I think I will end there. So thank you all, and I'll see you in a month. <laughs>